So we have been in uh, the book of Mark um, for quite a while now. We've got a little bit to go. Um, I've actually taken a break off of preaching. I don't know if you guys noticed. I, was, I took a little break off of preaching to get some rest. Um, and last a, a couple weeks ago, um, I felt like God was telling me when I was sitting down, just kind of meditating on who he was um, to talk about this. And it might be a little hard for me. But a couple weeks ago, my grandfather passed. And I had to just face, and I think most of our family just kind of looked at what death looks like. You know, he was a man that was um, a strong man. He was a humble man. Um, And on his last days, he was meek, sickly. Um, He could barely talk. And it was hard to look. It was hard to see that. But there was this awesome reality to what was going on because he had so much courage and so much joy of where he was going. I, this text this morning is going to open up the doors for us of what does it look like to walk to Jesus? What does it look like to move and approach Jesus? And I feel like I, I saw that through my grandfather two weeks ago. Willing, excited, ready. He approached Jesus with humility. He knew he had nothing else to offer. There was nothing left. No strength, but only Jesus. And I feel like I'll forever be changed by that moment. And I pray that we, um, as a church would live in such a way that we'd be just awestruck and amazed by who Jesus is, but have the reality that we don't have anything to offer him. It's free grace. Jesus offers free grace. And sometimes we only realize that at the deathbed. So church, let us be amazed that Jesus offers something that is so scandalous that we don't have to work for, that we don't have to earn, but it's freely given. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Mark um, chapter 7. See, now my my mind's gone here. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 24 uh, through 30. And when I'm done reading this, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to respond, thanks uh, be to God. Because we stand here today in humility. We stand here in reverence to the words spoken. We stand here in amazement of Jesus proclaimed this morning. Amen, church? Amen. So Mark chapter 24, verse 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre, and Sidon, Sidon. And he entered the hou- a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the uh, children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child laying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I pray as we navigate this text that we would have hearts that are softened, that bleed out for you, Lord, that we have eyes to see your glory, Lord, that we would have a response that wants to glorify who you are with everything we are, Lord. Uh, God, uh, I pray that as we look down what it looks like to approach your throne, Lord God, that you would put us in our place, but also give us the grace and comfort that we know that you pour out on us, Lord God. Lord God, we praise you. And we love you, Lord. We say all these things in your awesome, wonderful, and mighty name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So my big idea for today is approaching Jesus. I don't know if you guys are getting that at this point. It's approaching Jesus. Uh, But before we um, get into that, I want us to... Go over last week's texts a little bit because they blend together. They come together at the end of this, okay? So last week, uh, let me just try to summarize. Um, Jesus gets in another conflict. We see him with the Pharisees. And we've been seeing this all throughout Matthew. Um, the Pharisees, wants, they want to be right. They they. We're arguing with Jesus what makes a person unclean and clean. Um, and the Pharisees wanted to hold on to the practices, the external rituals of washings. And what Jesus does last week, he, he rebukes them. He rebukes the Pharisees, and he basically saying uncleanness doesn't come from external things. But uncleanness comes from internal things from the heart. So basically what Jesus was saying is you sin because you're a sinner. You can't wash yourself because it's within you. Only Jesus can do that. You can't clean yourself up. You need a savior. You see, after this conflict with Jesus, um, Jesus actually leaves. He leaves the borders of Israel, and this is where we find ourselves in this text, and he actually enters into a pagan land. This is actually the first time Jesus leaves the, the, the holy land, um, and he goes into a land that is pagan, with that worship other gods that don't believe in who Jesus or who God is at all. So verse 24, it says, And from there he arose and went away to a region of Tyre and uh, Sidon. Sidon. Am I saying that? Sidon? Sidon. Okay, just making sure. Um, so here we're told that Jesus leaves to the region, which is actually uh, modern-day Lebanon, and to this non-Jewish area where people worship different gods. Uh, they reject, they definitely reject God of the of the Bible of the of the scriptures of Israel 
Uh, Mark notes that Jesus enters a house once he enters this land uh, to find rest. In the account of Matthew, uh, we know that Jesus is accompanied by his disciples. He's not alone. So here we have Jesus trying to rest. But Mark also notes that he could not be hidden. So even Jesus fleeing to a foreign land, to a non-Jewish area, news of who Jesus is, his, his power, his might, his wisdom, um, his reputation has spread to even pagan areas. You see, it says he could not be hidden. I've just, when I was reading this, Jesus leads to a dark land. How much, how, how true is that today where even in the darkest of places, Jesus cannot be hidden? That his light will show throughout the world. I think it's just a wonderful just caveat to that. Um, so then in verse 25, uh, let's read real quick. It says, uh, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had been, who had an unclean spirit, had him, uh, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. And now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him uh, to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus couldn't be hidden. We have this woman. Um, we're introduced to this woman. And Mark actually gives us a lot of details about her. Um, and there's a reason for it. So let's kind of just go through those details real quick, all right? So first, the Syrophoenician woman is a woman. That's pretty, it's like, thanks, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but she's a woman. And, and why this is important is because during this time, it was very unacceptable for a woman to approach a man she didn't know. This is still true in uh, different cultures. Um, and it was even more unacceptable for a woman to approach a rabbi or a teacher. So we know that she's a woman here. And then the second thing Mark tells us is she's, her daughter um, has an unclean spirit. So it, it, what that simply means is that she's been around unclean. It's not only the land she's in, but she's been around demons. So we're, we kind of see this trajectory that's going on here. And then Mark says she's a Gentile. All right, so this means that she wasn't a part of God's chosen people. Um, she wasn't a part of the original covenant with God and Israel, which means being a Gentile also meant that she didn't worship God, she didn't read the Scripture, she didn't believe in the God of Israel. And then fourth, Mark gives us this detail. She's a Syrophoenician by birth. Um, why this detail matters is because the Syrophoenicians um, were the most bitter enemies of the Jewish people. They were the most bitter enemies of the Jewish people. The Syrophoenicians hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Syrophoenicians. Um, a lot of that was due to false god worship, to um, their sacrificial um, or sacrifices of children. Uh, there was a lot of things going on here, and the Jews and the Syrophoenicians did not um, like each other. But another big reason was during the Maccabean Wars, this is about two, 200 years before Jesus is entered into the scene, the Syrophoenicians rallied uh, with all of Israel's enemies to destroy Israel. So 
Israel, the Jews, did not like the Syrophoenicians. Um, if you were a Jew, they were no good. So we have this woman who's the wrong race. She's not a Jew. She's born in the wrong place, has a daughter with an unclean spirit, and she approaches Jesus. Everything in Jewish tradition would say she has no right to draw near and approach a Jewish man, let alone God. Yet here we have this woman, despite who she is, where she came from, what she's done, walks straight up to Jesus, falls on her knees and begs Jesus, have mercy, heal my daughter. There's a boldness here. I, want, I, I hope you see that. Because her faith is actually pretty amazing here. If she approached any other Jewish leader, they had the right, according to Jerusalem law, to stone her to death where she stood. I love uh, Tim Keller has something on this topic. He says this, um, there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum of cowardness to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. You see, this woman, this Syrophoenician Gentile, most likely have searched all over for help. I don't think Jesus was her first choice. She probably, she searched out her priests, most likely her gods within that region, but to no avail, to no relief. And she came to the conclusion, after hearing about Jesus' scandalous mercy, we've, we've been walking through Mark, seeing how Jesus touches unclean people. He redeems uh, the broken. She's been hearing this, and she's like, I think this is it. He's the guy. She reasoned and rationalized and came to the understanding that Jesus was the only way. You see, in Matthew, it says that she falls at her knees. She falls on her knees weeping. Weeping. She has no right, nothing to offer. And what she says in Matthew, in the account of Matthew, she says, Have mercy on me, O God, son of David. This is, this is actually pretty shocking because she is, she is addressing Jesus. No one has really truly addressed Jesus as Lord. But here we have this Syrophoenician uh, Gentile woman, probably the most farthest away in the Jewish traditions away from God, Addressing Jesus as God. We also know from the account of Matthew that she came up to him begging and she was relentless. She was urgent. She begged and begged and begged and begged and Jesus didn't answer right away, which I think is an interesting thing. 
She begged, mercy, my daughter, say, have mercy, Lord, God, son of David. It, she begged so much. If you look at the account of Matthew, um, the disciples get annoyed. Aren't they so awesome? Yeah. They're like, Jesus, send her away. Send her away. The disciples are so sympathetic, right? But then we have Jesus' response in verse 27. And this response may be not what you think. It actually may be pretty offensive. But we're going to dive into it. In verse 27, Jesus says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So maybe we just sit with that for a second and let that offense stir in us. So Jesus' statement here is actually pretty shocking. Or it seems to be. Especially if you look at how first century dogs were looked upon and treated. You see, the first century dogs were not like household pets like we have, right? Where we're like, we love and cherish our dogs, right? Unless you're a cat person, which I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the first century Jews didn't treat dogs the same way we do. They were considered ravenous, wild creatures that devoured corpses. That's rough. So the question here is really, is Jesus calling this woman a dog? Is Jesus calling this woman a dog? I'll answer it. Hold on. Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, if we look at this text in the Greek, um, it's actually used a little bit less aggressive. Um, the dog can be translated into a puppy. Um, so Jesus is saying, you're a little puppy. It's like, does that, does that take any of the weight off of it? Not really, because Jesus is still refer, referring uh, to this woman as a canine. So still offensive, right? But in the same way, it seems like Jesus here, um, oh, it seems like Jesus here is being a little harsh and insensitive to this woman's situation. Um, but he's actually trying to get her to pay attention. I would even go as far as say Jesus is trying to address her motives and intentions of her approach. Let's read this again. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bed and throw it to the dog. So let me just kind of break this down. What is actually, what is Jesus saying right here? And it's not an outright is, uh, insult to her. But Jesus here is telling a parable. He's saying a parable that he often does. Um, if, as we've been walking through Matthew, we see that when Jesus engages with someone, they come to him. Jesus offers up a metaphor or a parable to get the person thinking about the situation or what's going on. 
He's trying to get her to think. See, Jesus is also um, stating that his ministry journey his, has priorities as well. There's an order. You see, Jesus first and foremost came to fulfill the promises of God, to fulfill the Jewish um, law of the Old Testament. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God made a, a ton of awesome promises to the Israelites. And Jesus came to, to fulfill every single one of those promises to the, to the line of uh, David. You see, in Matthew it says, um, what Jesus says actually says, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is, in order, uh, his earthly ministry has an order. It has a redemptive timeline. And it's not time for the Gentiles in this moment. Romans uh, 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel for the power of God uh, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, Jesus' mission was always, so don't get me wrong here, it's always to redeem the Jews and the Gentiles, right? We see that through the book of Acts. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus sends out his disciples to uh, the ends of the earth to proclaim the good news of who he is to offer up salvation to any that believe. So we know that. But what Jesus is saying here is that there's a redemptive timeline to um, his ministry. That he came to offer up the news of who he is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So let's just look at the illustration here. Jesus gives us this illustration of a table. He gives us uh, this illustration that he is prepared a meal for the children sitting at the table, which is the Israelites. And it wouldn't be right to give bread that was meant in this moment for the Israelites to puppies. So though this is shocking, it could feel shocking, it could feel offensive, um, what Jesus is essentially saying is, woman, you have no right to ask me these things. It's not time yet. And it's not right to take bread prepared for the children and feed it to the puppies first. Let the children eat first. to first the Israel and then outreach to the Gentiles. So what this is, is Jesus setting up what his, minister, his ministry priorities are. And though it seems shocking what Jesus is saying, remember, he is, this is a parable, he's enticing her to respond. He wants to see her motives. He wants to see if she knows who she is and who he is. Okay? But what's even more shocking of what Jesus is saying here, this is what the woman says after. She says this in verse 28. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table 
eat the children's crumbs. Notice, we may be offensive of how Jesus addresses the situation here. She's not. She's not offended at all. She doesn't say, Jesus, how dare you? How dare you call me a dog, Jesus? She's not offended. She replies this, yes, Lord, I understand. I have no right. I have no claim. I'm not a part of your chosen people of Israel. I have no right to even sit at the table. My child has no right as well. Yet, Lord, all I'm asking is for one single crumb. One single crumb. I want you just to really quickly take a step back with me um, and see and notice the contrast we see that's being presented here between the previous engagement Jesus had with the Pharisees and this, uh, this woman. See, the Pharisees were always fighting for their rights. They were always fighting uh, to be respected and to be right. But here we have this woman who didn't even, she doesn't fight for her rights. She doesn't even fight for her dignity. She knew who she was standing next to God. But she also understood that Jesus' mercy and grace was more than enough to overflow from the table onto her. It was enough for her and her daughter. James Edwards says this. He's a, he wrote um, a commentary on the book of Mark, and I just I couldn't put the words better than he does right here, okay? So I'm going to read this. She appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does her. Better than Israel does. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples in Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. After one sentence, she understands his mission and receives his ambiguous condemnation. How is it possible? The answer is that the woman in the first, is the first person in Mark to hear and understand the parable of Jesus. She is the first person in the gospel account to hear the word of Jesus. This is so shocking because Jesus has been telling parables to the Jews who, like, I know the, you know, I know the Bible. The Pharisees, they're like, I've, you know, I train in the Bible. He's been talking to the disciples, and he's giving these parables to them, and they're completely confused. They have no idea. Jesus even gets frustrated and says, do you still have no understanding? And here is this woman the Syrophoenician Gentile woman that actually implants herself into Jesus' parable and understands who Jesus is and the grace that he's given. This is amazing. In verse 29, Jesus is amazed by this. He says this, For this statement you may go on your way 
The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child laying in bed, and the demon was gone. Um, in uh, the account of Mark, I love what this says in the account, or the account of Matthew. Jesus says this, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Your daughter was, uh, her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly. She understood that Jesus' grace is sufficient for everyone. And it says that Jesus says, oh, woman, how great is your faith. Do you know what that means? When you translate great into, uh, through the Greek, it's mega. So what Jesus is saying, your faith is mega faith. The, my, the disciples don't get it. The Pharisees don't get it. Israel, God's chosen people don't get it. But here you are and you get it. It makes sense to you. So I have a couple applications for us to kind of dissect and go over with this text. Remember, the first thing was approaching Jesus. And I think there's a question that has to be asked. How do we approach Jesus and this, this woman, this Seraphonician woman, really exposes and shows us what it looks like to approach Jesus, approach his throne in all of his glory. And the first thing we see through this text is she owns who she is. She owns who she is. I'm getting excited. Hold on. You see, this woman owned what Jesus said about her. She wasn't offended. Do you own what Jesus says about you? Do you own what the scriptures say about you? When you read the Bible, do you own it? Because it doesn't, the Bible ain't about us, just to let you know. It's not about us. If anything, when we look at the Bible, it exposes who we really are and exposes how great Jesus is and why we need a Savior. Do you own who you are? If Jesus today, right now, said to you, you're a dog, let the children eat first, you dog, how would you, how would you feel, truly? Here's the thing, church. We're all like the Syrophoenician woman. Guess what? We're Gentiles. We have that in common with her. But the beauty, the beautiful thing about God's grace is it is reaching and his mercy, it's reaching the ends of the earth. We're in Fernley in a warehouse praising God. Only by God is that possible. Do we understand, do we own who we are in compared to who Jesus is? Do we realize that we don't have a right? We don't have a claim on Jesus' grace. We also have no right to walk up to him. Yet, Jesus' mercy and grace pours over onto us. That's the scandalous news of the gospel. You see, through Jesus' work on the cross, we are grafted 
into the family of God. We're adopted. What was that song? We just sang a song about um, uh, adoption, right? Didn't we? Anyways, maybe, maybe I'm recalling last week. Uh, we're adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. And now we are able to sit at the table with Jesus. We don't have to eat the crumbs. Even though the crumbs are sufficient for us, we don't have to eat the crumbs. We can sit at the table and have a full course with Jesus. Romans 11, 17, 18 says this. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, uh, do, you, uh, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, the root that supports you. Do you see what this is saying? We are grafted in, adopted, a part of the root of who Jesus is and we get to have the full benefit of who Jesus is. This is what the, the Word of God is, okay? Let's look at this. The Word of God is like a menu of which God we find truth in, the Word of God, that we're able to feast upon. But this truth of Word of God, it directs us to a full satisfaction in Jesus Christ. We have full bellies when we eat and feast upon the Word of God. We don't have to eat crumbs. You see, this woman approaches Jesus for redemption. This is the second way we approach Jesus. It's the application, okay? Um, this woman approaches Jesus for redemption not based on who she is, and what she's done, but solely on who Jesus is. Uh, Tim Keller calls this uh, rightless assertiveness. <laughs> rightless assertiveness. Um, meaning she goes to Jesus knowing she has no right to ask, but has an assertive understanding that Jesus' grace and mercy overflows. Our culture doesn't get this. Our culture says, I'm assertive because I have a right and I want what I'm owed. And what this woman shows us is that we can be assertive with Jesus, not based on our right, but based on his grace. It's a right understanding of who we are to who he is. You see, but this grace and mercy isn't free. It's not free. It's free to you and me. But there was a cost. And it was a big cost. You see, Jesus paid for this free grace and mercy for us on the cross. There was a punishment that we deserve, but Jesus took it. He was shattered, so we were made whole. And now, us being unrighteous people are made righteous through his righteous work. And the punishment of our sin is placed on him, and we're given only grace and mercy. It's free. It's free. 
It's free for us to seize it, church. You don't have to be a good enough person. You don't have to get your ducks in a row. Grace is free. He already paid for it. And then I want to go into these two warnings for us this morning, okay? Two warnings. Um, when we approach Jesus, we don't want to approach, approach Jesus in these two ways, okay? <clears throat> because truly, if we approach Jesus in these two ways, the consequences um, is dire. So the first way we should not approach Jesus is having a too low a view of Jesus. Too low a view of Jesus. So you can read it right there, but I'll read it for us. Um, this is uh, as you approach Jesus, you look at his throne, you look at his mercy and his grace, you look upon the cross and you said, how could God love me? My past is too bad. Or you can say, um, I've gone too far. I'm too dirty to be made clean. And some of us would chalk this up to humility. And friends, this is not humility. This is pride. Because what you're essentially saying is that Jesus' power, his death on the cross is insufficient for you. And this is a low view of who Jesus is. We can learn something from this, this uh, Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman, that she understood that his grace and mercy pours out. It's not about who she was, who she is, where she came from. She's saved through Jesus. I love what um, Daniel Atkins Aiken says in his book, uh, Christ-Centered um, Exposition. He says this, No one is so unworthy that they cannot receive the blessing of Jesus Christ. No one. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the grace and mercy that's poured out on us is sufficient, completely utterly sufficient for every single one of us in this room and in the world. The second warning as we approach Jesus that we don't want to approach him this way is have a too high of a view of yourself. Too high of a view of yourself. And this is some comments. I just wrote some down. Um, as you approach his throne, I need grace, sure, but I'm a decent person and that just need, and I just need some help. Or I at least need a pat on the back or, or some credit for the good I've done in my life. Having a too high of a view is saying that you contribute in some way to the free gift of grace and mercy that's given to you. By your works, you somehow contribute. And that's a lie. Either Jesus paid all of it or he paid none of it. We had nothing to contribute. I don't want to read. Our works don't contribute to Jesus' salvation uh, upon us and his grace and mercy upon us. Isaiah 64, 6 uh, says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. 
and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, our iniquities like the wind take us away. So here Isaiah, and he drops it pretty hard here, okay? He, what Isaiah uh, is saying here, basically, is that all of our best works, all of the best works we've done in this life are like polluted garments. You know, and that essentially translates to dirty menstrual pads. Our best work is as good as dirty menstrual pads. We don't contribute. Grace is, or God's grace is free. His mercy is free. You see, we are so wicked. We have to understand this. We are so wicked, God of the universe had to die. But we are so loved that he was willing to. That's an amazing thing that we all have in common here. We, what does Paul say? I rejoice uh, in my brokenness, for through my brokenness he has made, um, his strength is made clear. I would probably chop that up really bad. But we get to rejoice that we're broken because Jesus is whole. He's the one that we look towards. You see, church, I feel like um, our sin is great. Um, actually, our sin is greater than you realize. I think we do have a slide up here for this. Our sin is greater than you realize, but his grace is greater than you could ever imagine. It's an ocean. You hear that song, Oceans? His grace is like an ocean. You are swallowed up by it. His grace sweeps you off your feet. And once was broken and distraught, is now made whole through Christ. You see, there are three types of people that approach Jesus' throne. There's ones that look upon Jesus' throne and says, I don't want that. I'll have none of that. There's the people that strut in to Jesus' throne room. They're strutting. I'm like, I'm owed what I'm due. And they'll find no mercy and grace there. And then we have this third that this woman demonstrates to us. We have this third way of walking and approaching Jesus' throne. And it looks like this. She falls on her knees and she says, Oh, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, this morning, church, we can approach Jesus. We can approach Jesus this morning knowing that his grace is sufficient for us. And I pray that we approach Jesus with a pennant that says, I have, have mercy on me, God. I pray that we approach Jesus uh, with a reverence that says, Lord, God, Son of David, uh, God of the Most High. And I, I pray this morning as we approach Jesus, that we approach Jesus like this uh, Gentile woman with relentless um, pursuit of knowing that Jesus, though she has nothing to offer, Jesus' grace is sufficient and will lavish us and pour it out on us.
Amen, church? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, um, we thank you, Lord God. We praise your name, Lord God. That through these hands, we cannot work towards any kind of uh, salvation, but only you offer it, and it's freely given to us. Lord, let us just accept it. Let us just seize it. Let's just take hold of it. Let's cling to your cross, Lord God, knowing that it's all been paid there, and we don't have to um, be self -con uh, self-condemned. We don't have to uh, look at ourselves in such a way that we feel like we are not loved, but your grace is free. Your death on the cross um, is powerful, and now we are saved through your righteousness and through your sacrifice, Lord God, and we honor and praise you, Lord God. Lord God, just as we sit here, um, in quiet reverence to who you are, Lord. I pray that you just impress your spirit on our heart right now. Impress your spirit on our hearts. Soften our hearts. Break our hearts for you, Lord. Let us see your beauty. Help us see your beauty, Lord God. Lord God, we pray, uh, we praise your name. And we say all these things in your power. Amen.